Hi, I'm Lauren Gilger, co-host of the show, one of KJZZ's original productions. It's a program with news and features from across Phoenix and the state. You can find much more at theshow.kjzz.org. Here's today's episode. Good morning and welcome to the show here on KJZZ 91.5 in Phoenix. I'm Lauren Gilger. Coming up, an effort to build a statue in honor of Sandra Day O'Connor is coming up against opposition from one of her sons. And our Made in Arizona series continues with a Navajo weaver and skateboarder. But first, housing is one of the most serious issues facing lawmakers at the state capitol this session. The average cost of a home in the Valley is up from $275,000 in 2020 to $429,000 today, according to Redfin. The average rent in Phoenix is a little over $1,500 a month for an 800-square-foot apartment. That's according to Rent Cafe. And we just don't have enough housing to meet the demand right now as people move to the Valley all the time. And it all matters enough to voters that there just might be enough common ground among lawmakers to make some changes this session. KJZZ's Cameron Sanchez is following it all down at 1700 West Washington, and she is here now to tell us more. Good morning, Cameron. Good morning. Okay, so last session we had this big bill, this one big bill that included some pretty aggressive measures to address our state's affordable housing crisis. This session, the approach is a little different. Yes. So we've got a bunch of little bills that would address housing sort of in a similar way, although the sponsor of last year's bill is no longer in the legislature. Other lawmakers have sort of taken up the cause. Mm -hmm. Um, And we've got some pretty substantial changes, proposed changes, moving through the legislature. And they're being very well taken so far, very successful. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about what's on the table now that we're this far into the session. Um, And I want to start with what lawmakers have dubbed the Arizona Starter Homes Act. This seems like the biggest probably piece of legislation on this front. What does it include? Well, a lot of things. But I think the most important part is that it would preempt municipalities, cities, towns uh, from home design requirements. Uh, So, you know, if I'm building a house and I want to have the the shingles made out of asphalt instead of ceramics or whatever. Um, This would say that the government can't stop me from doing that. I can make my own choices when it comes to little things. If I want a fence versus a wall, if I want, you know, a porch or no porch. And there are other little provisions like you can't require someone to live in an HOA. Uh, You know, residents can still form their own HOAs, but it's, it's very much about reducing the role of local government in dictating decisions when it comes to home building. Mm -hmm. Give us a glimpse into the kind of discussion around a bill like this and some of the others that we're going to mention in these committee hearings that have happened so far. Like, as you said, like, largely these bills are going through at this point, at least. But is there any pushback? Yeah, of course. (laughs) There's always pushback. (laughs) In this case, I'd say the biggest opposition is the League of Arizona Cities and Towns. So that's a very, very powerful lobbying group. It's representing Arizona's municipalities, Phoenix, Tucson, et cetera. Um, and they are against this because it's, again, it's like local preemption and it's taking away the power of the cities, which typically, you know, these housing projects are considered on a city basis and the cities have a lot of power to shut things down. And now the state government is coming in and trying to, you know, say, stop doing this or you have to let people do that. And, you know, it's ruffling feathers, which makes sense. And they were opposed to much of the the proposed legislation last year as well. Yeah. Okay. There's also an effort to give developers the right to convert commercial properties into apartments. Who's backing that one? Um, Some legislative Republicans. Again, I think the league is opposed to that one. 
uh, it's it's one of a series of measures that are sort of pocketed individual bills. So mm-hmm. there's one to create more duplexes and triplexes. There's one that's another bipartisan effort that would increase the supply of accessory dwelling units, which are like casitas, mother-in-law suites, little houses. Um, and then there's one that would narrow municipal licensing requirement timeframes. So mm-hmm. you have to approve a project or say no to it in a certain amount of days. You can't just leave the person hanging for years on it, you know, at a time. Yeah. All of this sort of meant to speed up the production of housing, make it a little easier to build. Yes. And of course, the league warns, you know, if you cut too many of our restrictions and things that we have in place, it's going to be bedlam. There's going to be chaos. And you've got some lawmakers, including Republican lawmakers, representing areas like Scottsdale, Arcadia, who say we have these beautiful master plan communities with giant ranch houses and we don't want someone taking over a lot and subdividing it into a bunch of tiny little homes on Mm -hmm. tiny little lots next door. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, so let's talk about a few of the measures on the other end of the spectrum. First, there's HB 2576. This would expand Arizona's low-income housing tax credit program. This is bipartisan. Where does this stand? Uh, That idea has has some traction, I think. It's not dead. I think that it's it's a little bit scary for some lawmakers. Making big changes is difficult for, you know, established lawmakers to swallow. And again, I think there's concern from municipalities. Okay. Let's talk then about evictions. There's at least one bipartisan bill to give people who are being evicted at least some more information about legal aid, right? Tell us about this one. Yeah. I think there were quite a few more homelessness-related bills, bills to sort of protect people from going out onto the street and to provide funding for homeless shelters and services. Mostly those were sponsored by Democrats and mostly they haven't gotten anywhere. But that that particular issue, uh, I've heard good things. You know, no one wants people to be evicted, obviously. But then, of course, landlords tend, you know, they want their own protections. They don't want to be saddled with people who are not going to pay rent, who are just going to be squatters. So it's a it's a balance. Yeah. OK. So a lot of this, as you mentioned, could face opposition from the League of Arizona Cities and Towns. There's also some mayors who are starting to speak out about this. Is that going to kill these efforts this time around? Do you see some sort of compromise happening in terms of like, will something, you know, a lot of these end up crossing the finish line this time around? So far, they're moving like hotcakes. I mean, you've got a lot of people that you're trying to please. You've got the legislative Democrats, the Democratic governor who is going to be signing some of these bills. Then you've got the Republicans. And then within the Republican Party, there's fractions. You know, there's the Freedom Caucus, which is more far right, which opposed a lot of the legislation last year. Uh, Of course, there's the League of Arizona Cities and Towns. But I think that, you know, there's so much seemingly consensus right now at the legislature between the Democrats, the Republicans of all, you know, shapes and sizes that, I think just the opposition from the League of Arizona Cities and Towns, no, is not enough to kill it. Okay. Last quick question for you about short-term rentals. Any Mm -hmm. effort to regulate those this time around? Plenty of effort, but not so much traction. So I think there were at least three, four, five bills that would have regulated STRs. That's like Airbnbs, Verbos. Um, But it it is not successful. And it's interesting because that's something that people have been asking for for the past five plus years Mm -hmm. Um, in a lot of communities. Big corporations will come in and build up, buy up all the housing supply and turn it into these short term rentals and make a profit, which makes sense. But then for people who want to live there permanently, there's, you know, there's less housing and there's fewer neighborhoods because it's just like a, you know, a stream of visiting people, having parties and having fun. Mm -hmm. All right. We will leave it there for now. That is an update on housing from KJZZ's Cameron Sanchez from Our Politics Desk. Cameron, thank you so much. Thank you.
The medical marijuana market continues to plummet in Arizona as recreational sales soar. It's a trend that began just about as soon as recreational marijuana was legalized in our state back in 2020. Now the Arizona Mirror reports that the recreational market more than triples the medical sector in Arizona. In November 2023, recreational sales hit more than $83 million. Medical sales stayed flat at $25 million for the second month in a row. So what does the future hold for the medical marijuana market here? And how big could our recreational market get? Yet, for more, we are joined by Eddie Salaya, reporter at K-Gun in Tucson and former host of the podcast, Here We'd Go with the Arizona Daily Star, to talk all about the marijuana industry. Good morning to you, Eddie. Good morning. How's it going? Great. Thanks for coming on. Okay, so these numbers seem pretty stark with a whole lot more people buying recreational marijuana than medical. Did this pretty much start from the beginning? Like as soon as we legalized recreational use, you started to see this differentiation? Um, yeah, pretty much within that first, uh, I mean, first year and a half. Uh, medical sales topped out in April 2021 at about $73.4 million. Uh, and so that that was a healthy year and a half into the, the legal and legalization project. Um, but since then, it has been a precipitous fall, uh, kind of as you recounted mm-hmm. in the lead up to this segment. Yeah. So we've also seen this decrease in the number of people enrolled in the medical mm-hmm. cannabis program, right? Like before recreational mm-hmm. marijuana was passed, there were almost 300,000 cardholders at one point in the state. Now there are less than 115,000. Tell us, mm-hmm. you know, what's behind the drop? What's happening here? Gosh, it's a little bit of a chicken and egg situation. So uh, since those medical sales have have dropped, um, you know, certain certain uh, items uh, that can only be purchased by medical uh, card holders. Uh, re- really, I'm thinking mostly of of edible items. Um, some dispensaries, because there are less medical patients won't carry those sort of items. Mm. And so it becomes a sort of uh, a, a sort of loop where if dispensaries aren't carrying these medical uh, medical only sort of items, patients won't be seeking them out. And so they'll just buy the recreational available items uh, or more of those recreational available items because they're able to do that with a medical card instead of seeking out those uh, higher potency items uh, that, again, would only be available to, to medical patients. There's there's no real reason if there's not a lot of, of medical patients mm-hmm. for, for dispensaries to be carrying them. That's interesting. Okay, so one big difference there. Um, medical marijuana is also taxed at a lower rate than recreational, though, right? Yes, Isn't this is. what's the big difference there? So, it, what medical purchases are not subject to the state's sixteen percent excise tax. Some might call that a sin tax, uh, but yeah. So those purchases are only subject to the the local sales tax and some other uh, state taxes built into the the medical program. Uh, so it is significantly cheaper, especially if you're a medical patient who is buying in bulk. Um, you can, and uh, in addition to that, medical card holders, like I mentioned earlier, can also just purchase more in any one visit to a dispensary. Uh, there's a, a different limit to what 
cardholders can buy uh, as opposed to recreational customers. Okay. So you can buy more and at a lower cost, essentially. Is it surprising Mm -hmm. then, Eddie, that many more people seem to be opting to just buy recreational marijuana at this point? Not necessarily. I I think it really goes back to that, um, that, that point I mentioned earlier where dispensaries just aren't seeing the value in carrying that those sort of items that only medical patients would be uh, able to purchase. Um, and and because of that, I think medical patients, those that w- were on the fence about maybe re-upping their card, uh, just figure it's, it's just too much of a hassle. Uh, you know, only certain dispensaries are going to be carrying those sort of items. So why go out of our way to, to do something like that? There's a cost to that medical marijuana card too, right? There is, uh, and and it can be somewhat significant. Uh, there was some uh, movement last uh, legislative session to uh, get rid of the fee associated with uh, pur- the purchase, or excuse me, the uh, the issuing of that card, mm-hmm. uh, at least for when it came to uh, medical, or not, excuse me, um, uh, veterans, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 just lowering the fee from two hundred fifty dollars every two years to one hundred and twenty five dollars uh, every two years. So that that would have been a significant, I think, uh, way to kind of save this sort of program. Uh, but that didn't end up passing. So. Let me ask you lastly here, Eddie, about about what this means for the future of the medical marijuana market. Like, is this going to continue? Will it just continue to shrink? I think it will probably continue to shrink. It, it, the shrinkage has gone slower and slower. Uh, I, I think it'll probably top out or, excuse me, bottom out around 100,000 medical card holders. Mm-hmm. I think some people will still see the value in it. There are also workplace protections that come along with having a medical card uh, license with you um, that mm-hmm. would not be available to to folks who are just purchasing recreationally. Are we going to see very quickly the, the recreational market continue to grow? Will this top out at some point? Uh, I think you'll see it continue to grow. The other reason I think there's a little bit more growth uh, in sales is that there's more innovation uh, and from companies who are within the space mm-hmm. who look at the recreational market as where where the growth is. So that's where they're focusing any research and development, especially towards people who are maybe don't count themselves as cannabis users. Mm-hmm. You see the the appeal of of drinks uh, and topicals like uh, uh, creams uh, that appeal to people who aren't smokers or or aren't going to vape cannabis. All right. We'll leave it there. Eddie Salaya, reporter with K-Gun in Tucson. Eddie, thank you so much. Thank you so, so much. Have a good one. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. Coming up, Ralph Lauren's first artist-in-residence is a Danae skateboarder, model, and seventh-generation weaver. I'm most excited about showing the beauty of Danae designs on pieces. I really do like expressing who I am. We'll hear about textile artist Naomi Glass's journey. But first, late last year, the Biden administration reverted to a Trump-era rule that requires asylum seekers who don't speak English to provide their own interpreters for their asylum interviews. 
But our next guest says for many migrants, especially those being held in detention centers around the country while they await their hearings, accessing a translator can be near impossible. Ariel Koren is founder and executive director of Respond Crisis Translation, the only full-service language access collective in the country. They are a network of 25,000 translators who provide oral and written translation support to asylum seekers nationwide. And she told me this rule change has broad impacts and is part of a broader system of challenges for asylum seekers. The requirement that Affirmative asylum applicants must provide their own interpreters as of September 13th, 2023, is cruel and unusual. It is a true violation of the basic human right to language access and to communication. I mean, to put into perspective what this means for asylum seekers, most folks who are impacted by this have fled from unspeakable violence. And so these folks are in the majority of cases in a detention center and then are expected when they have no access to resources and to networks to provide their own interpreters. So without having the money to pay for an interpreter, without having the networks to know for an interpreter, they're told that in order to go through the interview, which everyone must go through in order to apply for asylum, they need to bring their own interpreter to that interview. And the United States government says that if you need an interpreter and do not bring one, or if the interpreter you bring is not fluent in English, then This will be considered a failure to appear for your interview and your asylum application will be dismissed. Hmm. It is essentially impossible for people to be able to source their own interpreters. I mean, the irony of this whole thing is that the communication to people that they need to bring their interpreters is in English to begin with. So folks are not even aware that they need to bring their own interpreters to these interviews. I want to back up for a moment just so people understand, like, what is it that interpreters traditionally do like in an asylum case? What kinds of things are you handling? Yes. So at Respond Crisis Translation, we work across a variety of different contexts, but the majority of the cases that we take are for folks who are seeking asylum. So that means that we intervene kind of across different junctures of the asylum process. We support folks who are experiencing the violence and trauma of the carceral system from within detention centers. We provide oral interpreting so that folks can communicate with attorney activists and build out their asylum case and fight for liberation from detention. And then we also translate the asylum applications themselves, which are hundreds and hundreds of pages long, Mm -hmm. um, big packets full of evidence that folks are forced to put together without any sort of subsidies or help to prove to the government that they're worthy of being granted asylum. And the government provides no translation support, but requires that all asylum materials be submitted in English and that all asylum interviews with adjudicators happen in English, in spite of the fact that Almost no one who's seeking asylum comes having any sort of proficiency or fluency in English or any experience communicating in English. Let me ask you, so some people must be getting around to this. How are asylum seekers maybe who are released back into the community or those in detention able to get around to this? I mean, you mentioned like lack of access to telephone or Internet services. Like are there avenues like organizations like yours that are trying to fill the need? So what we do is that we plug in for exactly this reason, Mm. because it's more than just that the government is failing to provide a service. 
it's I want folks to see beyond this idea that what's happening is that the government is telling people they have to provide their own interpreters. It's much worse than that. The government is weaponizing language as a tool to keep asylum seekers from being able to have access. That is what is happening here. And so at Respond Crisis Translation, what we do is we intervene in these systemic language rights violations mm. in order to support folks. So folks will reach out to us at different parts of the asylum process in order to request our support in translating asylum applications, in communicating, um, in trying to understand what's happening in the asylum system. And that is where we'll intervene. We have to date translated over 53,000 full asylum cases and provided over 13,000 hours of phone interpretation for folks who are seeking asylum and navigating other systems. But in some cases, folks who reach out to us have unfortunately only been able to reach out after they've already had to suffer the violence of these language rights violations and how to experience the negative outcomes inherent in these language rights violations. Recently, one of our clients who had fled from Afghanistan and had submitted her entire asylum affidavit had her asylum case rejected after the United States government refused to provide an interpreter for her and instead forced her to rely on a machine translator. And the machine translator mistranslated all cases of the pronoun I Mm. to the pronoun we. And as a result of these mistranslations, her entire case was full of inconsistencies and the judge was able to use these these linguistic errors and inconsistencies to justify denying her case. And in these cases, luckily, these folks were able to reach out to us and access resources. And the translators on our team were able to review the cases and to spot these language rights violations and intervene. And in the end, we were able to file for appeal and ensure that these folks were able to ultimately be granted asylum. I want to ask you lastly, like this is this is coming in this moment when we are seeing the immigration system be completely overwhelmed, the asylum system in particular be completely overwhelmed in a way that we've really never seen before. What does that mean for this situation? Is this exponentially worse because of the situation we find ourselves in? Absolutely. There are over 1.3 million unprocessed asylum claims in this country. And at Respond Crisis Translation, I mean, we are a network of 2,500 talented translators working in over 180 languages. Mm. So we ourselves are evidence and testament to the fact that this is not a crisis of talent. There is not a deficit of talent in this country to provide quality translation and interpretation. This is a deficit of funding and economic justice. Under the Biden administration, there is a new policy that every single asylum seeker is now required to initiate asylum claims using an app, a mobile app, which is called the CBP-1 app. This app is extremely glitchy. It is translated into only five languages, and it is completely unintelligible in Haitian Creole. It's full of typos. It's full of mistranslation. For example, the word customs in Customs and Border Patrol is translated as 
the word that means tradition, that type of custom. Mm -hmm. I mean, to give you an example of the degree to which this app is impossible to use. And so asylum seekers are essentially being told that if you are unable to make sense of completely unintelligible gibberish, utter mistranslations, then you are not going to be allowed to seek asylum. So it is truly a cruel form of language deprivation where we see that language is used at every single juncture of the immigration system to make access to asylum close to impossible for asylum seekers who are already facing insurmountable barriers. That was my conversation with Ariel Coren, founder and executive director of Respond Crisis Translation. We also reached out to U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services about this change and did not receive a response. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. The Arizona House of Representatives has given preliminary approval to a measure that would raise money to build a statue of the late Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor and send it to statutory, statutory, Statuary Hall at the U.S. Capitol. The proposal has bipartisan support and calls for the new statue to replace the one of Father Eusebio Kino, which is currently one of the two statues representing Arizona there. But our next guest says the idea is redundant. That's because the federal government has already authorized and set aside money for a statue honoring Justice O'Connor. Scott O'Connor is Sandra Day O'Connor's eldest son and testified against the measure at the state legislature. He came by our studios recently to talk more about it with my co-host, Mark Brody. And they started with what the process for creating the statue on the federal level was like. I was contacted by the staff of Senator Amy Klobuchar, who chairs the Senate Rules Committee and its subcommittee. Uh, She's also chairman of the subcommittee, the Library Committee, which controls the Library of Congress and a lot of things on the Capitol campus, including Statuary Hall. Uh, She and a number of other uh, federal legislators in both houses thought it would be nice to honor both mom and Ruth Bader Ginsburg with statues to land somewhere on the Capitol complex. In the final form of the bill, they thought, how nice if we were to put them on either side of the entrance doors to the historic Supreme Court chamber that's in the Capitol building. And um, Senator Klobuchar's staff contacted me initially, and then I had a number of conversations with her. She's very genial, uh, talked about this. And we spoke often about the symbolism of doing that project with the two of them together because they came from very different political backgrounds and sort of side of the aisle things but yet went to law school at the same time in the same era when they were like the only ones in their law school class. You know, mom had two other women in her class, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, similar thing at Columbia, almost none. They both had fabulously humorous, entertaining husbands. We're so polarized. The country is so divided. How lovely to have these two women from totally different backgrounds and political leanings who ended up being such good friends and having such mutual respect and admiration for one another, be posed together. And you were pretty involved, not just with conversations, but you were pretty involved with the process of like seeing, sort of helping see the bill through the entire process, right? Well, not once it was, you know, kind of filed and 
on its way in earnest through hearings and so forth. But I participated in drafting the bill in the sections that kind of went into mom's backstory, okay. you know, her bio, why is she important, all that kind of stuff. And uh, I took some pride in having contributed to that. And, you know, it was a very nice, pleasant experience, you know, where my participation was encouraged and appreciated the whole way. So when a reporter called me a few weeks ago to talk about the statue project, wanted comment on the statue project, I thought to myself, well, that's kind of old news. That was, you know, signed into law two years ago. He goes, no, the new one. What new one? Well, there's one in the state legislature, you know, to get a statue made of your mom to go to Statuary Hall. And I said, you know, there's a federal one doing exactly the same thing. Why, why would there be a second one? That's so redundant. So who's, who's behind this? So anyway, I, I found out and I contacted the sponsor of the bill. I said, did you know about the federal one? And then, you know, our history on what was said exactly during that conversation has, you know, kind of got spun a little bit in different versions. But I got the sense that uh, maybe the bill sponsor didn't know. And uh, maybe would be willing to kind of delay this or walk it back until the federal statue had a chance to be commissioned, designed, sculpted, cast in bronze and installed. And let's see if it's nice. If it's a really nice sculpture, you know, life-size bronze in the Capitol, that statue already fulfills the mission. Arizona has their gal in the Capitol at a prominent location with a you know nicely funded half million dollar budget statue. What's not to like? Yeah. Apparently, what's not to like is we didn't send it there, and so that's kind of where I ended up kind of on a different side opposing the bill because I I thought it was redundant, and perhaps if the legislature here wanted to honor mom, they could think of another way to do it that wasn't already being done by somebody else. Well, so what is the timeline on the federal statue? Because as we know, the federal government doesn't always move super quickly on things. If you'd asked me two years ago, by spring of 2024, where would they be in the process? I figured they would have already hired the artist and she'd be, you know, playing with the clay in a studio or he would be playing with yeah. the clay in a studio somewhere. I didn't anticipate how slowly the wheels of federal government turn. Um, it gets assigned to the architect of the Capitol that controls all the buildings. One of his tasks on this job is can the floor outside the entrance to the, whole, the old Supreme Court chamber handle the load of these two bronze statues? That's part of their scope of work. And they aren't going to award a statue commission until they know that they've got a safe place to put it. So there's been a lot of that going on. But I learned uh, – once I heard about the Arizona bill, I called to get a status report and I learned that the architect of the Capitol – is handing this off now to the National Endowment for the Arts, okay. the NEA. They will have a contract with the architect of the Capitol to write the RFP, hasn't even been written yet, put it out, solicit proposals from artists, and commission. So slow moving, yeah. which is part of why maybe the legislature here didn't know because it's still churning very slowly through the process. So you mentioned maybe the legislature, if they wanted to honor your mom, could do something else. Anything specific that you think that money could maybe go toward? Mom only passed in December. And I used to watch her interact with people. And it, as, as the years went on, it was so funny. People would – people that really knew her well, that were really comfortable around her, used to laugh about how bossy she was. <laughs> but in a nice way, all right? Um, 
we, we heard a lot of stories back in Washington in December during the memorial service week of, of clerks talking about how they'd come to mom for advice and they'd come away, you know, where mom would sort of end up you know, saying it's your choice. But then they felt like sort of there was really only one choice <laughs> after they had heard her out. And it was your mom's choice. And it was mom's choice, you yeah. know. And, and, and they said, but she was always right. So we were good with it. And, and so she was bossy in that way. And I've seen conversations like that with close friends as well as total strangers. And so if the legislature had gone to her and she wasn't impaired with dementia, she would have said, well, they're already doing one. Why, why would you do another one? They're going to do a perfectly good statue. I have confidence in the Senate and the architect of the Capitol. Heck, they maintain the Supreme Court for the justices and, and the NEA and, you know, They'll get you know quality people bidding on this. They'll have their pick of a bunch of really accomplished artists. I'm sure they'll do a really nice job and they have lots of money to finish it. Why do we need another one? You know what you could do? You could improve civics education in Arizona or do something else that would solve some problem or really raise our game. I was – every institution I ever belonged to or volunteered for, I felt my role was to make it better for the next people who followed us. Let's do that instead. And so when this bill went to its first committee hearing at the legislature, I told them that's what she would say. And their answer was sort of both sides of the coin. They said, we really want to do this statue anyway. Sorry you're not thrilled. And we can do something with civics or some other thing to honor your mom too. There's nothing that says by doing a statue we can't do that. So, you know, OK. That's fair. The measure in the Arizona legislature would raise private money. It wouldn't be state money. The state uh, had would have no role in raising the money. Right. They partnered with an O'Connor Institute, which is a, an organization that was sort of formed to honor mom. Uh, that the family is not on the board of directors. You know, we're not. We don't make any decisions for them. But they volunteered in this bill to take the lead on raising the money to pay for the statute. It's not right. going to be done on taxpayer funding. Right. All right. We'll have to leave it there. That is Scott O'Connor. Scott, thank you so much for coming in and talking to me. I appreciate it. Thank you. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. And now let's meet the next maker in our series, Made in Arizona. It just, it connected me to my roots and it's just something so portable and inexpensive and felt that I could take risk with embroidery in a way that I couldn't take risks in other areas of art. A lot of my paintings, gravity doesn't matter a whole lot. From there, I had a request for hand-dyed wedding gowns and that's how it started. <laughs> so I didn't plan to be a wedding designer. I just knew I wanted to work for myself. I love to sew. I love to just be in my piece. Try to tug at people's heartstrings and try to do something disturbing, but usually a duality piece. But this year was all about, you know what, I don't want any madness in my work. I want it really just to be this big, beautiful place that I want to live in. Dance wasn't something that is necessarily seen in galleries, you know. And I just remember being like, this is the key. This is how dance gets out there. I escaped real life and I went back in time.
That's what it sounds like when Naomi Glasses skateboards across the windswept rock landscapes of the Navajo Nation in northern Arizona. It's just one of the talents that first got her noticed on the world stage in viral videos. But today, her career has gone far beyond her skateboarding skills into the fashion world, where she's gotten noticed for her intricate Navajo weaving. It means so much to share my designs. I know it could easily freak me out if I really started thinking about it. Artists and residents fully immerse me into processes at Polo Ralph Lauren, but also it honored my own processes as an artist in how I create. Her latest collaboration was with none other than Ralph Lauren, becoming their first artist in residence using her Navajo weaving in a new collection that came out this winter. Before that, she was at New York Fashion Week with designer Gabriella Hurst and featured in Vogue for her enviable turquoise collection. She's also worked as a model and an advocate for those born with a cleft palate like her. In fact, that's why she started skateboarding as a little kid. I've been skating now for 20 years, and it's I just like doing it to ride. I learned how to skate like in our, we lived in a cul-de-sac. So I would Mm -hmm. just skate around in the cul-de-sac. Well, honestly, I started from the kitchen. My mom didn't want me out on the the concrete. She would put up pillows like around the kitchen (laughs) in case I fell. And like I was all padded up and everything. And then I graduated (laughs) to the garage. And then from the garage, I went to the driveway. And then from the driveway, I was finally able to skate the (laughs) cul-de-sac. I spoke with Glasses before her big Ralph Lauren collab, and we began with more about her skating. She first gained social media fame for skating on the sandstone landscapes on Navajo land, often wearing long, traditional Navajo skirts and turquoise jewelry. It seems like so much of her work as a weaver as well, a real celebration of Navajo life. Well, the first time I ever skated sandstone, I skated Mm -hmm. it when I was 16. I was daring. I was, uh, like, I... Felt like I could do anything really at 16. <laughs> and um, I remember being out on the land looking for our grandma's um, missing sheep. They had wandered away a little too far from the house. <laughs> so we were, my brother and I, we were looking around. And at that time, skateboarding was like, it, it consumed my life. Like every <laughs> moment I wasn't skating, I was thinking of the next time I could skate. And so I would always have my my skateboard in the back of the vehicle or whatever because I thought, any chance I get, I'm going to go skate. (laughs) (laughs) And um, so we pulled up to this really big sandstone and I saw it and I was just like, oh my God. And then my brother (laughs) suggested, do you think you could skate that? And I was like, I don't know, like maybe, possibly. And then he was like, you should give it a try. And so then he hyped me up. He's like the best hype man in the world. And <laughs> I went down it and I skated in it. I feel like I've been skating sandstone ever since, really. Was it kind of a transformative moment for you? It it kind of was. You can see how the land changes around it when you're out there. One of the things that's really like notable and I think is probably one of the reasons you have become so well known for this when you skate is is what you're wearing right like you skate in kind of long skirts traditional Navajo clothing 
why? Why do you do that instead of, you know, wearing pants or shorts or something else that would be easier probably to skate in? <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, well, back when I was in high school, I had always wanted to wear the long dresses and dress like traditionally Navajo. As soon as I got out of high school, I started wearing the skirts. And um, it just kind of really became a part of me. So that's when I would sometimes find myself wanting to skate. And I didn't want to have to like completely change into a pair of pants. I mean, I want to talk a little bit about your journey in fashion. Like you're a model as well. You're also a weaver. You have this like impressive turquoise collection that's been written up in Vogue. And you've done a lot of these kind of collaborations now with various fashion designers and houses working uh, from your weaving. How do you see fashion intersecting with the work that you do as well as sort of your Navajo identity? Honestly, I feel like fashion is such a big part of identity, like not just for me, but for everyone, obviously. And mm. I I like being able to express that. And um, I've been fortunate enough that I can work with these amazing companies and mm. I'm most excited about showing the beauty of the net designs on pieces. I really do like expressing who I am by wearing my turquoise as you had mentioned in the Vogue article mm -hmm. that was written up about me last year. That was an amazing experience. I mean I had met the writer Christian Allaire at Santa Fe Indian Market and so I'm just really grateful for like people like Christian in the fashion industry because he's indigenous as well mm -hmm. and he is also bringing the spotlight to indigenous people in fashion and letting people understand that different indigenous art forms are luxury like he had this one article about how beadwork is luxury mm -hmm. and I think that was really important because a lot of times people don't value the time and effort that goes into a lot of Native artwork. And mm -hmm. so I'm really appreciative to people like Chris in the fashion world and so many others. So as a weaver, I know that you kind of try to combine these worlds, right? Like you try to use traditional Navajo design, but also combine it or maybe push it forward with some fashion edge. Tell us about your process in, in design and, and, and how it shows in your weaving. So a lot of my weavings aren't actually planned. I kind of have an, a rough idea of about how big I want the weaving to be. And then I warp it up. So that's like, I guess, the skeleton of the weaving, you could say. And then I find out where my middle is, and then I just kind of count and randomly work on figuring out exactly what design will go next. It kind of just, like, will come to me as I weave. It just flows to me naturally. Where does the inspiration for that come from for you? The inspiration can come from a variety of places, and a lot of times I find that it comes from our surroundings so I'll mm. see like maybe in the sky like I'll see like a sunset and I'll like how the colors combine in the sky or I'll see a rock randomly laying next to another rock and I'm like hey that color combination is really nice 
Or mm-hmm. I could see striations in a rock and be like, ooh, like that would be really pretty. It looks like a wedge weave. And then I mm-hmm. could try working on something similar. So really it just comes from, it sounds like it comes from a lot of nature now that I'm explaining it. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> So, I mean, you've taken this so far and you've been so successful in it. Um, And I know you've probably got a lot more on the horizon. But I I wonder this, like a a lot of people as successful as you are, I think would would leave, like would go to, you know, the big city, to New York or L.A., where a lot of the fashion kind of world exists. I wonder why you have stayed on the Navajo Nation. I feel that on the Navajo Nation, there's just so much more inspiration to draw from. I think that if I were to move to a big city, I could lose that drive and the maybe the magic of what being here on the Navajo Nation does for me. I think it's honestly a lot of technology, too. Like, I think if this were a time before then, I would have probably had to move somewhere like California or New York. However, mm-hmm. I'm really thankful that these tools and technology exist that I can I can be at home and I can be on the land and enjoy the life that I love out here and also get to design and do something I love. So I'm really thankful for that. All right. Naomi Glasses, Navajo Weaver model as well as skateboarder, joining us for our latest Made in Arizona. Naomi, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for telling us your story. I appreciate it very much. Thank you for having me, Lauren. That'll do it for this Wednesday edition of the show. Be sure to join us tomorrow morning with much more. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram. We are at KJZZ, the show. For Mark Brody, I'm Lauren Gilger. Thanks for joining us. 